Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollacon Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Series 6, Circling the Toy. Episode 3. The birth pangs of Ulster. And then said Cathbad, The child who cries out waiting to be born will be a woman of such yellow hair, yellow curls, with lovely eyes of greyish blue and cheeks of blushing foxglove pink. The colour of the first fall snow will match her white and faultless teeth behind those lips of lustrous red. The child who shrieks within the womb will be a woman. Fair and tall, many champions will quarrel over her. Warriors of Ulster will face slaughter for her sake. Kings with their armies will speak of her, including the province of Concova. High queens will feel sharp pangs of jealousy, seeing that smile, all red lips and pearl teeth, seeing that faultless and matchless form. True it is that a girl child is there waiting to be born. Her name will be Deirdre, and concerning her, there will be trouble. Well, in the last episode, we began to look at what you referred to as the backstories of the backstories of some of the main protagonists that move in and out of the Toyn stories. Yeah, and as we said in the last episode, Portents and Prophecies, we're attempting to examine the Toyn tradition in the storyteller's manner, Mm -hmm. sort of thematically, rather than trying to tell a chronological story. Yeah, well, I mean, that would be seriously (laughs) problematic to attempt. There's just so much material and it's so closely interwoven and interlaced. Also, there's so much of it that we would call tradition-dependent. Yeah, original audiences would have been familiar with the stories and they would have been able to sort of unravel the references with some ease. Yeah, and all those interconnections as well. Which we find difficult. They are difficult when you don't have it all already. That last episode, we dealt with some marvellous conceptions and births of a couple of the major characters, Mm -hmm. most specifically Concover and Cunnel Kernock. Now, today... We intend to add a few more of those conceptions and births. There's enough of them. We're going to start with Deirdre, who we heard prophesied at the top of this episode. Oh, yes. Deirdre the Trouble. (laughs) Deirdre of the Sorrows. Now, funny enough, just last week, I surprised a group of children with my reaction when they told me, oh, they knew this story, they knew all about Deirdre. They were really expecting enthusiasm Mm. and were a bit shocked when I told them how much I disliked the story. Yes. Well, it's a tale that is possibly better known than any other of these toy stories. It's still very popular in schools for some completely bizarre reason. And I think it might be one of the most reworked literary retold so many versions, of all yeah. the stories. It's absolutely astonishing. It's Everybody been knows it. novels and plays and poems and everything. And it's so mean! 
miserable. Exactly. It's just so melodramatic. For goodness sake, what does she do that's so magnificent? She dies. Yes, yeah, well, like And a I mean, if only they'd have listened. I mean, why on earth did Fergus listen to all the rest of the story? It drives me mad. It's worse than Romeo and Juliet. It is somewhat, yeah. I know it's terribly romantic and I should be much more romantic about it, but I'm not. No, I don't think that, you know, abduction, rape and death are particularly romantic, but maybe that's she just She doesn't me. go off and revenge anybody by going out with a sword like Nesta. Yeah. Not even that. Yeah. We are going to take at least one episode to explore the one, whole story. Only the whole story in great detail. Maybe we'll get to like some parts of it then, but you know, that's for the <laughs> I'll try, I'll do my best. Yeah. I will do my best to give it a really positive spin. Well, let's try anyway. Not possible. No. But we're going to start today anyway by examining the events surrounding her birth and her childhood. Yep. She's another one doomed before she's even born. Yeah. Well, let's start by telling the story before we actually start ripping it to shreds. We're using two tellings of the story. One is the oldest one that we have available, which is from the Book of Leinster. And then we're also using a version which is really very late. It's edited and translated by Douglas Hyde, and it's from a manuscript of the 18th to 19th century. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a modern retelling. And it could carry some oral storytelling elements so yeah. it's worth putting in i think so well it begins as so often happens with a feast so concover with all of his red branch warriors are attending a feast which is hosted by fedlam the son of Dol, and he is the king's chief storyteller they are naturally enough having a merry old time they're eating and they're drinking and oh, yeah. what you might expect browsing <laughs> yes i mean the text says with gentle music of the musicians with the melody of the voices of the bards with the delight and eloquence of the ancient tales of the sages and so on all the poets and storytellers are there including of course kathfat who we met in the last episode and not to forget shenacha he is just as important. The story tells that Fethelm's wife is very close to her time of giving birth. Now, once the warriors have all passed out from enthusiasm and they <laughs> fall where they lie or lie where they fall, they're suddenly disturbed by a terrible shriek that echoes throughout the whole house. It turns out that this shriek has come from the child who has not yet been born. And this cry causes all the warriors to jump up and immediately start fighting each other. Sensible Shenika tells them to calm down. And he calls for the woman. And he also calls for Cathford and asks him to have a look into this strange phenomenon. Cathford places his hands on the woman's abdomen and then he prophesies the child's future. Of course, he has nothing good to say. And equally, as you might expect, he speaks her doom in poetry. And Mm. some of that I gave in a slightly modernised version at the beginning. Yeah. And he tells her, as I said, that she will have a girl child who will be so beautiful that she will bring ruin to Ulster. Yeah. Deirdre shall be her name and an evil woe shall be upon her. Now, it's worth noting here why... Is he giving her this name? And this is one of the reasons I love studying the language. Her name comes from the word dird, which is also a great word, which means a droning noise or sometimes some kind of, you know, ugly animal noise. So all those little girls romantically named Deirdre haven't been quite given the name that they think they have. Possibly not. So it comes from Dirdre, that sort of drone, drone noise. It's a, a double It's quite onomatopoeic. It is very onomatopoeic. Mm. It's often used for the buzzing of bees, mm. which mm. I think is very appropriate. It's worth noting that 
it's connected to the sound that she has made from the womb. Mm. That gives her her name. So then Cuthbert, of course, gives a poetic description of her beauty, as we heard some mm-hmm. of at the beginning. And not long afterwards, this child is born. Now, I bet that wasn't a quiet birth. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine all the top warriors and nobles all gathering round, waiting eagerly to see this much-heralded troublemaker? Yeah, but she's only a tiny child at this stage. And Cathbert, of course, is ready with more prophecy. Although from a modern narrative standpoint, all he's doing is giving away <laughs> the rest of Deirdre's story in advance. So, I won't read the prophecy now because no. we don't want too many spoilers. No, no, we don't like spoilers. I don't like spoilers anyway. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> As usual, anyway, we will add links to the text that we reference on the website so you can go and read ahead if that's what you like. Now, the men of Ulster demand that this baby should just immediately be killed. Tough. Yeah. Mind you, Concover is just intrigued by the story, and I think he's mostly influenced by the prediction of the girl's immense future beauty. Mm-hmm. So he stays their hands. Yes. And in Tide's translation, he makes all sorts of excuses for saving her. Mm. He suggests that it's not a good idea to deny fate like that, and uh, it's a pity to destroy an innocent life on account of a prophecy that with care could be circumvented, especially yeah. when she was going to be that beautiful. Well, yes. <laughs> It's interesting that as time goes on, we find these later versions where those older narrative motifs about prophecy that... Just taken for granted. Yeah, would just immediately to the audience be, oh yes, well of course he's going to do that now. They have to be kind of explained away by the later tellings. Why should people want to kill this child? Just because of a prophecy? Exactly. And then why do they go and do it anyway, even when it's been foretold? All those things that now a modern audience demands from our stories. Would be expected in a mm. story. It, yeah. it, it is true. Yeah. However, even so, Concover is very careful to make it clear to his warriors that he won't be ignoring the warnings of this foretelling. No. He's going to take action. What he tells them is that this child will be under his protection. And in order to ensure that she doesn't cause this great disruption that's been prophesied, he is going to take her as his own now, wife. that's big of him, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I wonder whether there's a bit of the way that King Canute is now misrepresented. That <laughs> yeah, Cover goes, I can hold back fate, no problem. I'm being me. mean. I really yeah. am being mean to this story and I know it. Yeah, yeah. But... Concover goes on to vow by the moon and the sun and in that wonderful old Irish oath that takes all the elements as witness and sureties that he's going to kill anyone who endangers her, i.e. who gets anywhere near her for any Uh, reason. Unfortunately, the way I look at him, it's really setting her up for what is to follow. Of course it is. (laughs) This is the classic, you know, oh, don't try and, you know, go against the prophecy, it'll only backfire. Now, in the version from the Book of Leinster, he merely states, she shall be reared according to my will and she shall be my wife and in my companionship shall she dwell. There's no more to it than that. Yeah, exactly. That's all you need to say in those older narratives. Now, as I said, he does take the duty of raising Deirdre very seriously. Yeah. So he places her with foster parents hidden in a secret fortress that no man is permitted to enter. <laughs> now, in the earliest version, we get an interesting insight into Lavarkham. That's sometimes glossed as a nurse? Yes. In the more modern version, she is given as Deirdre's foster mother. Mm. But in this very early version, it's noted that as well as Deirdre's foster parents, they can't keep Levercombe out. She's a female satirist 
So there's nothing they can do about it. <laughs> female poet, particularly that type of poet, they have a lot of power. They do. And in fact, female satirists are one of these classes of very, very dangerous people mm. that you don't cross for any reason Which whatsoever. Why one of the translations mm. said she was a witch yeah. and she couldn't be kept out. Yeah, exactly. So therefore, that's the female satirist and the later feeling towards especially female satirists. Absolutely. Which is troubling. <laughs> That later version, the Hyde version, gives much more elaborate description in everything. And this includes what I quite like, which is that he names her foster father as Kalkine, which just means a little chalk. <laughs> There's a, a lovely description of where she's kept, yes. which I'll give a little bit about. It's very fairy tale like. It is. A beautiful orchard full of fruit lay at the back of the fort, in which Deirdre might be walking for a while under the eye of her tutor. A high, tremendous, difficult wall, not easy to surmount, was surrounding that spacious house, and four savage man-hounds sent from Concover were on constant guard there, and his life were in peril for the man who should venture to approach it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds rather magnificent and full of luxuries, but she is nonetheless a prisoner there. As you might expect, she grows up to be this great beauty, but even so... Hyde says that as she reaches this marriageable age of 14, she suffers a sadness and a heavy flood of melancholy which lay upon the young queen. Um, she gets depressed. Yeah. And I'm hardly surprised. Mm. I mean, she was facing what so many, many young women have faced throughout history and they still do today. Yeah. And I'm wanted, arranged marriage at a young age. Exactly. And a young woman to a much older man. And then the chariot wheels of fate and prophecy <laughs> begin to turn. Whee. And we next meet a story element that should still be very familiar today to anyone who has read a fairy tale. Now it goes like this. Once it chanced upon a certain day in the time of winter that the foster father of Deirdre had employed himself in skinning a calf upon the snow in order to prepare a roast for her. And the blood of the calf lay upon the snow and Deirdre saw a black raven who came down to drink it. Lavacum said Deirdre, the only man I will ever love is one who has those three colours that I can see here. Hair as black as the raven, cheeks red like blood, and a body as white as the snow. Mm. Now the Hyde translation tells a more detailed and more descriptive story here. And we must remember this is a later version. It was already a very popular story, just as it is today. Its audience really wanted more. They wanted to savour this scene. And I find it really interesting to see which elements of this story get expanded as time goes by. Yeah. Now, in this version, Deirdre Foster Father reacts really adversely to her sighs over the thought of a man with black hair, ruddy cheeks and fair white skin. And he takes out his knife, throws it and cuts off the raven's leg. He then throws the mutilated bird at his foster daughter. Yeah. Now, I find this... Really very interesting. Yeah, I mean... Bird symbolism, yeah, especially the raven. Absolutely. And while we always pay attention to the bird symbolism, this wounding, this mutilating of a raven, it almost foreshadows the way that Cúchulain wounds the Morrigan. Yeah, it's it's been put into the story. Well, if Cúchulain does that, yeah. here we see what's going to happen. Exactly. This almost like foreshadowing, foreseeing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it is picking out those motifs and, and giving them a bit more prominence. It's also interesting to see Lovercombe's attitude. She does something really quite strange in the Hyde version. She gathers up a cup of snow, half a cup of the calf's blood and three of the feathers from the raven's wing and she brings them in to Deirdre. Yeah, and Deirdre does something that's even odder. 
she pretends to eat the blood and snow with the tip of the feathers. Yeah. And then she has to be left alone for a while. Mm. And once she's alone, she shapes a man's head from the snow, mottles it on the cheeks with the blood, and uses the raven feathers for its hair. Yeah. Well, Levercombe comes back and remonstrates with their charge, saying, oh, no, you can't do that. It's not permitted for you to draw any man except on cover. And Deirdre's response is, well, I can't help it. I saw this man in a dream. Yeah. Well, then Levercombe comforts Deirdre by telling her that even if she does have to marry Cuncover, they won't be for too long. He is getting on a bit. And, and that's you know, cold comfort, isn't, isn't it? it? Don't yeah. worry. He won't be He'll soon be dead. <laughs> Yeah, just put up with it for yeah, a while. Yeah. Lie back and think of Ireland. Oh. And then, yeah. 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 It, but it really is. It really is. The snow poppet is an unusual motive, though, of it, though, isn't it? It is. Who knows where that particular element might have been drawn in from. Like all popular stories, other story motifs tend to get stuck to them. Yeah, the creating of an image that could come to life. It's a very interesting element. It is. So that concludes the account of the wondrous birth of the famous Deirdre. Yeah, but I'm not sure that this is the right place to stop. Okay. Having got this far, we may as well go on until we meet this white-skinned man with his rosy, bloody cheeks and his raven black hair. <laughs> yeah, Nisha. Yeah, that's him. Himself and his brothers, the sons of Ishlu. Perhaps we should just go on with the story to the point when Deirdre manages to fly this coop. And escapes a suffocating gilded cage. Yeah. Okay, we'll keep going. Right. Well, in the end, it's not actually Nisha's raven black hair and snow white skin that catches Deirdre's attention. It's his voice. She hears him singing on the ramparts in what could be a fine tenor voice. Yeah, the early text comments that it was the singing of the sons of Ushlu that was a marvel in itself. Mm. It says, Melodious was the singing of the sons of Ushlu. Two thirds of surplus milk was always milk from each cow or each animal that heard them. Yeah. So it was more than just good voice or good oh, singing. Yeah. They weren't just going to win the X Factor or something <laughs> like that. This was a magical singing. This is something really very deep and special. But it's not only their voices, they're great warriors. No one could beat them when they were standing back to back in the battle. Hunting too. They were swift as hounds while they were hunting, as long as all three of them were doing yes. it. Yes. These three kind of have it all. They do somewhat. Now, Deirdre manages somehow to get out of her gilded prison and just casually wander past Nisha as he's on the ramparts doing yeah, his singing. been in prison, she can get out. Yeah, there is some oh, yes. know, exercise time. Yeah. This is movement at the, the rate of story, isn't yes, it? Yes. Movement yes. at the rate of plot. Being brought up in isolation doesn't seem to have prevented her from becoming an expert flirt. Mm-hmm. Now, he seems to know who she is, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. And he proves something of a flirt himself. <laughs> Fair, he says, is the heifer who is walking past me. Heifers, she replies, are bound to be big where bulls are not bound to be. Well, you have the bull of the province, he responds. You know, the king of the Ulsterman, you've already got the biggest of the bulls. Well, I would choose between the two of you, says she, and I would take a young bullock like you. Now, at that point, he stops, mm. suddenly realising what's going on. Mm. He's horrified. Ah, uh, by no means, he says. What about Kafat's prophecy? And she says, do you say that in order to reject me? And that is reason enough, he replies. Well. She now takes matters into her own hands. She leaps at him and grabs his two ears and says, <laughs> these are two ears of shame and derision unless you take me away with you. It's wonderful image, isn't it? She suddenly grabs him and grabs his head and pulls his ears down. <laughs> Presumably she's a bit shorter than him. You could just see him trying to get loose. 
And what's more, she's calling him an ass. Well, she is threatening satire. Absolutely. He's not going to get out of this one. Mm. He tells her to go away, but he's really worried. So he goes off to discuss the situation with his brothers. They agree that the damage has been done, and although he's innocent, he's not going to escape the disgrace of having attempted to seduce the famous Deirdre. Yes, but he really has no choice at this stage. She will satirise him unless he comes away with her. And then he's all lost anyway. Exactly, because if he does elope with her, the whole of Ulster is going to rise up against them. And if he doesn't, he's lost his kudos. Yeah. The sons of Ashley agree that they should leave and they secretly whisk Deirdre away with them. After all, they comment, there's not a king in Ireland who won't give us welcome. Yes. They know that they're good. They know they're the top heroes, mm. top dogs, and they think they're going to get away with it as long as they don't stay yeah. anywhere near the King of Ulster. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what they do. They set off in the middle of the night uh, with their 150 warriors, their 150 women, their 150 dogs and their 150 servants <laughs> in just, you know, the bare essentials. Just travelling lightly. Among this retinue is Deirdre and she's just me in with everybody else. Now, of course, the Hyde version adds the usual sensational details. One of them is the tearing down of a great green curtain from a hidden window to create the first big reveal of Nisha to Deirdre, just like in a sort of Radcliffe novel, Gothic <laughs> novel stuff, yeah, Mistress yeah. of Udolfo stuff. It, is, it really yeah, is. Yeah. But the other bit's even more so, because mm. there's the ripping to shreds of her clothes as they escape with her over the ramparts. Yeah. This, this We're is... getting close to the, the Gothic novel. We here. are, rather. <laughs> All those titillating details. Well, that's about it for now. We are going to return to their further adventures in a future episode. What do we make of this birth story so far? Well, it doesn't have that worm motif that we found in so many other stories, but then we don't actually have her conception in this story. It's only her birth, and it is a human birth story, if you like, but it does have these marvellous elements. Yeah, and perhaps the most marvellous of them is this weird shriek from the womb. Oh, yeah. That reminds me of several other stories, including, remember the children of Turin, when they have to make the three shouts from the hill, which will bring about their fate. Yes. What it does do is call other world attention, doesn't Mm, it? Yes. And you've got the situation where the shriek from the womb causes the warriors to rise up and fight. Yes, yeah. It's definitely this shriek from the other world which has come into this world. Yes, like a banshee Shriek, yes, I suppose so. It has yeah. it's, it's like instead of the death banshee, this mm, is a birth, a birth banshee. banshee. Call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got Deirdre's abduction right from birth. It's such an extreme measure to take away this newly born infant that once we get to the later version in the Hyde translation, he has to start making excuses for why he can cover chooses this course of action. It's certainly abnormal, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And shocking on human level. Now, the sons of Ushlu, they clearly also have otherworld attributes. Mm. It's their singing that gives us this. And their singing brings about abundance and peace, just as the singing birds of Rhiannon are supposed to have done. Yes, and all those birds we met on the Imrova as well. Yeah, Yeah, they're definitely an indicator. And I find it so interesting that there's this utter contrast between the voices of Deirdre and of Nisha. Deirdre is named from this utter strange sound that she makes Mm. from the womb. And Nisha is defined by this voice that brings peace and plenty rather than strife Mm. and suffering. So I think that's somehow at the core of their pairing is that Mm. contrast. That Deirdre invokes strife Mm. and Nisha invokes peace. Yeah, but there's something about how they combine 
that is important to the way this story works. Maybe we'll see more of what is implied by this when we examine the whole story. Yeah. This story does contain motifs that are very familiar in a variety of well-known fairy tales. Yeah. I mean, I'd include Snow White, Briar Rose, Rapunzel, yes. and so on. Yes. It is an old story, but how much could we consider it a source for these familiar motifs? Mm. I mean, we've got, firstly, the red blood in the white snow. Yes, although in the fairy tale versions, that's more usually a mother who's wishing for a child. Rather than a young woman looking for a husband. Exactly, that's yes. Good. Then we've got the familiar idea of the princess imprisoned in a guarded fortress. Yes, the Rapunzel in the tower. We've met this in other Irish stories. We've met this with Ethlu being kept in the tower and still managing to give birth to Lug. But in this version with Deirdre, we have her guarded by a female satirist, and that later gets glossed as a witch. And of course, we have that witch guard in Rapunzel, don't we? Mm. Definitely. Mm. And of course, she's rescued, as usual, by a handsome young man. Yes, although he is somewhat reluctant. (laughs) Not surprised. Yeah, they often are in the Irish stories, I have to say. (laughs) And she kind of takes things into her own hands. She does. I think this is really her only escape route. And she takes it, once again, like we saw with Ness, once she has a choice, she She makes it. it. Yeah, Yeah, they're pretty determined. They are, uh, yeah. Princesses or young women in Mm. Irish stories. Yeah. One way or another. Yes, yes. Now, I did say it's an old story, but in fact, I do happen to know it's not the oldest version of this story. Mm. Except the oldest one is probably Egyptian. Mm. And why I like it, because it's the story of a king who imprisoned his son in a tower. Uh Because he was to be killed, uh, if he didn't escape the crocodile, he'd be killed by the dog. If he did, it's a dog first, then a crocodile, then a serpent. It's the three creatures. And he knew he'd be killed by one of them. So Mm. he thinks, I'm not having that, so I shut him in a tower. Yeah, yeah. Now he's eventually rescued by... By a young woman nice. who brings in the dog, saves him from the crocodile, mm. or the serpent, saves him from the serpent. Unfortunately, we don't know the end of the story because the end of the story is lost. Ah. But that has to be the oldest yes. version. Yeah. And it's the other way round. That's yeah, why I like that's it. Nice. That's nice. Yeah. So it really doesn't help me answer my question. It doesn't. And we will, I think, always have this problem when we are looking at textual stories and comparing them with oral fairy stories because they're always going to be influencing each other absolutely you know while in some of the old irish we definitely have an old written version it's the text is older than texts for dearmid and gronia for example and it's a lot older than the medieval romance of tristan and isolde but it's got all those familiar motifs I don't think we will ever really be able to answer the question about what came from which. No, to me, the story of Diamond and Grania actually feels older. But then you see, that was an oral story that was written down very late. Yeah. And that doesn't help. It doesn't. None of it helps, I'm afraid. (laughs) We could keep talking around in circles on this forever. The fairytale chicken and egg scenario. That's it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, or the raven and egg. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the stories we've examined so far, that is, the births of Concover, Connell, and now Deirdre. Yeah. What they all have in common, I think, is an interference, a sort of perversion of the natural conception and birth process. Yeah. I mean, look at Concover. He's born of a double rape. 
Double rape? Well, yeah. I mean, Ness is forced to submit to Cathbad first. Yes. And then she's also forced to swallow the worms in the water, which are the other world elements. Yes. And it's both. She has no choice about either. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, she goes and sits on a flagstone for a day to because to get the delayed birth. Yes. And, of course, this is long before any kind of induced labour or planned parenthood of any kind. It's not the best way to do it. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Don't try it at home. (laughs) And, of course, Connell and Deirdre are both threatened by death at birth and both could die for their future acts. Yes. For nothing they've done, but what they might do in the future. And do you know who says about those future acts? In both cases, Cuthbert has a hand in that. I think he's got to be held responsible. So we've got three women, two mothers and one daughter, all suffering abduction and virtual imprisonment. Yeah, and sometimes actual imprisonment. We've got Ness, who has her foster parents killed. We've got Ness forced into marriage with Cuthbert in the same way that Deirdre gets forced into marrying Concover. And then you've got Connell's mother, who has to seek the protection of her brother in order to prevent both her death and that of her unborn child, even though he later tries to kill that child. (laughs) Deirdre's imprisoned, isolated from childhood, forced into early marriage with a doddery old king. And this seems to be the theme running throughout the time. I'm afraid so. It's a perversion of respect for birth that yeah. causes the curse that's central to the time, that of the debility of the Elsterman, and that's what we're going to come on to next. Yeah. The Kess or Neunden Oled, which is listed as one of the Reifschgelte for the Toynbokulnia. So that means that it plays an important role in all the events that unfold in the course of the cattle raid. The particular connection is the curse itself, the kess or the debility. And this means that any time the people of Ulster are in their greatest need, then all the warriors, all of the men, will be as weak as women in childbirth. This curse was laid upon them by another woman abused in her time of childbirth, and that was Maka. Absolutely. Now, we have talked about Maka in great <laughs> length. We started with our second episode back in our first series, Mythical Women, and episode we went two. back to it when we did our revisit mm-hmm. of Mythical Women again the second episode in that series now the story of Marco has always been one of our favourites hasn't mm-hmm. it but because we've spent rather a lot of story archaeology time <laughs> on her I think we'll only be able to cover her story now in basic outline yeah and if you want to go through it all again then of course there will be the links on the website go back and listen to those episodes and go and read the stories so if we apply the same question we have to all the other characters mm. who is she and what's her role role in the Toyn story. Well, we've already addressed our role, or at least the effect she has in the Toyn, being the cause of the curse. Yes. Now, she does appear elsewhere, as we said in that episode. She seems to be an important ancestor figure. Mm-hmm. Back in the Levergavola tradition, she's connected with Nevid, and we talked about how Nevid stands for those places of learning, and how Macha stands for the rich pasture land on which you'd raise your horses. Yeah. Garth and garden. Yes, I like thinking of her that way. She's sometimes given as a wife of Nuita, and indeed her death is recorded at the Second mm-hmm. Battle of Maitura, more or less in the same breath as <laughs> the death of Nuita. There are other Middle Irish Denhianicus, there's prose and poems, where she's given as a daughter of Oiz Ruid. Now, mm-hmm. some say that's the same as the Dagda, but as we know, trying to trace family trees, <laughs> in this, it doesn't work. It really, no, really no, doesn't no. work. But we're currently concerned with, only really with her appearance in the Toyn tradition. Yeah. And here she just turns up, a stranger, but very much an otherworld visitor. The story begins with the great Boara, the strong farmer of Crunhu, who was a widower living in Ulster. 
And then one day this wonderful woman just appears, saying nothing, walks into the house, turns right hand wise and then quietly and efficiently takes over the running of the household. One of the phrases I like in that story mm-hmm. is after she has put the whole house in order and the household's gone to bed, she goes under Krunhu's blanket and places her hand on his side. So it just says, and she became pregnant after that. <laughs> <laughs> but she does everything needed to uphold this choir. Absolutely. It's this all fitness, about the, brightness. Yes, an order, you know, mm. that will create wealth and create prosperity. And then all goes well for him until it's time for him to attend the Oinach at Oinach. Yeah. And as we went through in those episodes and in our special on Oinig, the Oinig was a very particular kind of gathering where there were obligations upon you to go. And one of its functions was to reset your personal status mm-hmm. and effectively submit your tax returns. Mm-hmm. So this, Not just entertainment. No. So the statement of your wealth, your goods, your chattels mm-hmm. was a part of what's expected what from you. What you had and how much you owed. Exactly. Yes. Now, the woman, of course, who is now pregnant and close to giving birth, tells him that everything will be well as long as he says nothing whatsoever about her. He mustn't speak of her. Mm. But unfortunately, and maybe expectedly, he fails to keep his word. He goes and boasts of his marvellous wife. Says she moves so well she could race the king's horses and win. It's the sort of thing that happens when you've had a drink or two. Uh, Yes, certainly does. Now, it sounds like a very foolish boast, very stupid thing to say, Mm. but it's not that simple, is it? No, it isn't. As we explored, Kronku is now at the centre of competing obligations. He has the public obligation to give account of his household and its prosperity, Mm -hmm. at which she is central. She's the heart of that prosperity. And so he's now caught between a gesh and a hard place, essentially. (laughs) And as soon as someone has a gesh put on them in an Irish story, you know it's going to get broken. Mm. So there's a narrative expectation. On a bound to speak and on a bound not to speak. Exactly, yeah. Impossible situation. The king demands that the woman sent for, and even though it's clear that she's heavily pregnant, Mm. he demands that she immediately prove his boast or Conqueror's life is forfeit. Yeah. Race my horses or your husband dies. And this is the real unacceptable thing it is such an overreaction and it is an unjust sentence from Mm. a king and Mm. as we know that means he's broken fear of the land is going to fail you know as soon as he's given that completely bizarre Uh, reaction and of course as we know sadly she races the horses and wins yes but gives birth at the finishing post to twins Mm. and quite understandably she curses the ulsterman (laughs) yes i think i would too quite probably Now, we did point out when we discussed it before that one of the things about speaking at that moment is that this is a particular time when women have authority, Mm. is speaking when their children are born. So she needs to be listened to at that moment. There's a legal priority or something. There is, yes. It's one of the times when a woman's oath cannot be oversworn. She can't be oversworn when it comes to any oath she makes about her children's paternity. It's his fault! Exactly. If she makes an oath during (laughs) childbirth, then that can't be countersaid. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's Mm -hmm. a very important moment and that's reflected in the stories by these moments. Mind you, the king's in trouble now. The king is, he's just gone now. We know that the kingdom is going to fail because Mm. of this breaking of the king's truth, the fear of Lathaven. He's already cursed his own land. Mm. She doesn't necessarily have to speak it out loud. He's already ensured its destruction. Mm. 
It's quite different from where Ness makes her own choices. Yeah. Though it's Cathvine who makes the statements about the child. Yeah, and I think that that's interesting that we talked about, you know, where does Ness have a choice? And she mm. makes the choice about having an important son. But it's Cathvine who speaks about the child's future. She's not, it should be her who speaks. I think so. I mm. think so. So, yeah, the entire kingdom is now doomed, basically. Uh, the king doesn't have authority. And we know now that the people of Ulster are in trouble for generations there to come. Disadvantages people for yes. the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah. Now, Just over a drunken boast. Who is this king? Because there is some conflict. Yes. As to who he is. There is. Now, if you look at some of the later tellings of this, including those within the Metrical Degenicus, basically, once you get to Middle Irish tellings of this story, the king at this feast is named as Concover. But of course, if you do that and then try to imagine the time in a chronological manner, it just collapses the whole time scale. Because this had happened long before. Exactly. This is something yeah. that happened generations ago that Maka gave this yeah. curse. And you have the same problem. She goes to our Maka yeah. and it's called our, our Maka because yeah. she's there. Yes, exactly. But we we come across that in oh, Dianica's terms. very often. Yeah. So there are those later versions where the king is called Concover. But as we said when we talked about Concover himself... You kind of get the feeling that every Ulster king becomes a concover. If it's a maka, it must be concover. Yeah. And also because this story is so central mm -hmm. to what happens in the time, mm -hmm. you can see why the association would be made. Now, you wanted to say something about the other versions of her story. Yes. Probably worth adding in. I think so. And I think it gives us another perspective on the role that Macha plays. Yeah. And what we're talking about now is the stories of Macha Mung Ruad, who is given as this daughter of Oith Ruad, which some mm. glosses the Dagda, some glosses Mither, what she is Macha of the red hair, or the red mane, as she's sometimes translated. She is due to inherit sovereignty in Ulster from her father. Mm. But the sons of another one of the kings wants to prevent her mm. from taking on that sovereignty because she's female. Mm. They don't want a woman ruling Ulster. And so Macha dresses up as a leper woman comes upon these four sons of Ditherva out in the wilderness and they each take turns having sex with her. Even though she's a leper. Exactly, yeah. Well, there's all this thing about won't people be ashamed of you going with a leper woman? It's like, oh no, sure, if I do it and we all do it, then no one can blame us for it. <laughs> it's not a nice story. No, it isn't. However, Macha, every time she goes off into the bushes with one of the brothers, she then ties them up and comes back and they say where's our brother and he goes oh he got shamed and ran away who's next <laughs> and once she has them all <laughs> so she's dragging up, into the bush yeah, and yeah. tying him up then coming back for the next one yeah. that's brilliant yeah <laughs> so once she's got all four of them instead of killing them for their crimes both of rape and of trying to prevent her getting the sovereignty mm -hmm. and there are clearly people around Maha who say you know kill them she says no basically she says what the doctor said at one point it's better to have a day of their labour than their death mm -hmm. and so what she does is she sets them to digging the ditch around Evwin Maha which she has marked out with her brooch pin so they have to build the ramparts basically yes. and do all the work exactly. I like that exactly and I, I thought it was worth mentioning because 
it's another view on how the role of a woman can be used Mm -hmm. so that the woman does get her rights in the end, even though she is abused by the men around her. Even though it's another story which includes the rape motif. Absolutely. Which they all do. They really do. Yeah. Uh, Deirdre, not quite, but effectively. Well, effectively, yes. Yeah. Yeah, It's just legitimate rape. So if we look at this story, see what we make of it, see if we can summarise it. Mm. I mean, what we've got is that this coir, which is, I know the word that we use yes. for the rightness, the fitness. Yes, or natural, natural justice. Natural truth and, of it. Yeah. In ancient Egyptian, the mart yeah. of it. It's all about upholding rights and balance. Yeah. And when these are abused, things go wrong. Inevitably. Inevitably. And over and over again, we've seen that coir maintains the fertility of the land. Yes. And this includes the fertility of crops and livestock, but also people. Yes. If these are abused or ignored, especially by a chieftain or king, the land and its people will fail. Yeah. And this goes right the way through. It's true in Moitura. It's Mm. true. We've come across it all over the place. Yeah. It's that concept of fear of Lathavan, the truth of Mm. the king, which is just so central to the whole tradition. Now, fertility is maintained, it seems, by the open flow of life between this, the temporal, and the other world. Yes, yeah. Which are both concurrently there. Yeah. And these channels are maintained and kept open by core, by yeah. natural justice. Mm. And they stop the land from becoming a wasteland. Yeah. We're coming back to the same thing over mm. and over again. Yeah. And you remember in our explorations of the Maitora saga, yeah. we went so far as to equate the cow and the fertility of the cow with the later concept of the grail. Yes. So what is a grail? Yeah. It's, it's a, a cow. cow. Yes. <laughs> and sometimes a woman can stand in place of that cow, as we discovered so often with Ethlu, Bowen. So, in fact, women also stand in a crucial point yeah. of that flow of coir and that relationship between truth, balance and fertility. So the abuse of women is a disaster. It's going to evoke the wasteland as soon as you abuse a woman. And what we keep finding in the Toyn tradition is that women are abused, betrayed, raped, abducted, prevented from speaking. I think that's the important point. Prevented They're prevented from, from speaking. speaking. Yeah. Their voice is not heard. Yeah. And that reminds me of a late story in the Welsh Mabinogian yes. tradition, The Lady of the Fountain. It's one I used quite a lot mm. in the past. And basically one of the knights goes in, in this country which is beautiful and fertile, mm. and everywhere there are wells guarded by maidens, each of whom has a golden cup. A bit like Dexter's bronze Yes, and I think that that's going to... There yeah. is so much that connects here. Yeah. And she will draw water from the well and give it to anybody who passes. Mm. But this knight decides that, no, this won't do. And he steals the golden cups and rapes the maidens Mm. and the land becomes a wasteland. And it says very clearly that the land will not be healed until the voices of the wells are heard once more in the land. Mm. Read that, the voices of the women. Yeah. Yeah. Voices of abused women Mm. have to be heard. Yeah. And I think we're going to find this central to the time. I think it is. You know, it's something that was suggested to me a very long time ago that this was important in the time. And as we go through it, I'm seeing it more and more clearly. It's so much of it is seen in terms of the heroes Mm. and their valiant and courageous stand to protect their country. Mm. But there's so much more under the surface. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's it's one of the reasons Mm. that... It's good to have alternate readings by different kinds of people because a woman reading these stories is going to respond differently to these tales of childbirth. Not just women, I think people who look deeper. Yes, but it's good to have the the different readings. No, I agree. I agree. So that you get all of those. We're not excluding, but 
the fact that we're yeah. women, of course, is going to yeah. You know, and it wasn't what I was us. necessarily looking for. No, it's just it's when you start to look at it, these yeah. things just jump out at you. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the gap between worlds is very narrow at such times of change. Yeah, conception, birth, and death. Yes, and we'll see this coming back as well. I think so. Yeah, all the time. We have one more marvelous birth to talk about in this episode, and that's the strange and troubled <laughs> conception and birth, or conceptions and births. Of Cúchulain himself. Now, he had a job getting born at all. Yes. It's quite a story. Yeah. What text are we using this time? Well, the text that I'm using is an old Irish strand that comes out of Leverin Hydra, and it's one that I did in class when mm-hmm. I was studying, and just I've always loved it from that time. It's a, it's a fantastic story. It's old Irish, is it? It Early is an Irish. old Irish strand, mm-hmm. yeah. Now, this story, for once, doesn't begin with a feast. No, it doesn't. It begins with the people of Evan having a bit of a problem. There is a huge infestation of birds who are coming, landing on the green in front of Evan and grazing it so completely that not even the roots of the grass are left in the ground. Yeah, and the Ulster people were getting really fed up. Yeah. They found there was nothing they could do to defend the land. The birds were acting like a plague of locusts. Yes. (laughs) So they go and hunt the birds? They do. And the text seems to imply that Hunting birds was already a bit of a custom, you know, normal pastime for the olives. And of course, that might explain why they've got a plague of birds then. <laughs> because birds, as we've said over and over again, they're so often messengers or messages mm. linking the temporal and other worlds. And, and bad things can follow from ignoring or abusing them. Yeah. Again, abusing birds, Cora is disrupted. Yes. And just think how this theme resonates with the two swineherds that we talked about in episode one. Oh, yes, when they were these two great old birds who were fighting so much that it was disturbing all of Munster and Connacht and they couldn't even hear themselves speak. That's when they sacked their poets and when things really started to go wrong. It was shutting up the birds that caused the problem. Yeah, hunting of birds and hurting birds or mutilating birds, it does seem a bit of a recurrent theme in the toying tradition. Mm. And later we're going to find Cúchulain having a little bit more trouble with some other birds in a later story. Well, let's get back to the hunt and get the story started. Mm. Now we get to meet Decton, an exceptional woman. Yes. It seems that she is Concover's daughter and his charioteer. Absolutely. And she's seen to be an expert charioteer, what's more. Now, there are other versions where Dechtina is given as Conchover's sister rather than his daughter. But either way, it's that close of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And in this, the oldest strand, she's his daughter. Now, it turns out there are some other familiar characters there as well. Oh, yeah. There's Brickru, yes. Loigre, Connell. Mm-hmm. Now, I know it's not really relevant here, but it might be worth commenting that it shows that uh, when it comes to Brickru's feast, this story is closely associated. It is. It's got the same characters Absolutely, involved. yeah. And it also also shows that Cahullan is much younger than Loigre and Connell. Yeah. In fact, he's a young upstart brat in Fled Brickroom, which might explain a lot. Well, I think he's always actually a young upstart <laughs> brat from beginning to end. That is his character. Anyhow, the Ullad follow this bird flock over Schlieffuid, over Evan and over Brega. There's a nice little side note that yeah, is worth yeah. exploring here, like a little gloss. It says there used to be neither ditch nor fence nor stone wall around land in Ireland at that time, but only smooth plains. And it's not until the reign of Mac Oid Slán that we get the enclosure, and it says that that is because there were so many farmsteads in that time, they had to start putting fences around them. So there is a remembering of a time 
time before the land was enclosed. I think so. And I think in some ways, as we commented with the two swine herds in their kind of forested land, mm-hmm. there does seem to be a harking back to a time before. So it's very deliberately marking it as something that happened in the past mm. before things were as they are now. So back to the story mm. and our marvellous and magical birds. Yes. What the Ullets see are nine twenties of birds and each pair of bird is connected by a silver chain. Now, I really like this image. Yeah. It sounds like birds flocking in formation through clouds. Mm. And that's always a magical sight. Yeah. These groups of birds linked by a silver chain, they do turn up more than once, oh, don't they? They certainly do. They they come up in the end of the Top of Argeina, the wooing of Aideen. It'll come up in the Shergliga con mm-hmm. It is a regular marker, so it's a familiar image. But it's hard to ignore this. Just think about a formation of geese high in the sky. That sort of sharply defined shape, dark against silver winter clouds. Mm. It really fires the imagination to look up and wonder where their strange journey will take them. Mm. At least that's how it gets me anyway. And pairs of birds, silver-linked, mm. could so easily be a poetic description of this natural event. Oh, we yeah. live in a clouded country where the underside of clouds turns silver yeah, yeah. in the darkening light at mm. sunset. I can just imagine it. Yeah, but also you can see why particularly like migratory birds become symbols for things changing, mm. you know, because uh, it's just a practical observation. And of course, these chained birds are always otherworld emissaries. Yes. And then it snows. <laughs> And that's a giveaway. Yeah. They're not in Kansas anymore. They're certainly not. They have, in fact, been led on a wild goose chase. <laughs> literally. Absolutely literally to the edge of their territory. And then night falls. They are lost. And they're on the other world border. Yes, they're right at the edge. And that's a pretty dangerous place to be. At night. The Ullad send Brickru, of all people, to go and find accommodation for them. This is probably part of his role as a Bruggett. And it's very like the way Finn and his men send Conan Whale to find the house of the Quicken Trees. Absolutely. For the same reason. Yeah, they're in the snow, they're lost. Brickrew does find a house, but he comes back saying that it just, it won't do. It's far too small. He's actually mistaken in that judgment, which may be a bit unfair on poor Brickrew, because the Ullad get all of their retinue, all their chariots and all of their horses into this tiny house and there's plenty of room to spare. Even though he's told them it's very narrow. Oh, yeah. So he's found a target. Yeah. <laughs> They've definitely transferred to the other world location. A parallel universe, yeah. Well, they're given plenty to eat and drink in this other world house. In fact, the text tells that the men of Ulster were happily drunk after that and good was their enjoyment. Oh, yes. You really want happy Ulster men. <laughs> their host, though, tells them that his wife is currently indisposed she's in the pantry in the room next door yes quilla it just means it's like a back room storeroom yeah storeroom for for storing your food but his wife is in there and the pangs of labor giving birth okay dechtana good woman that she is goes back into the pantry and helps to deliver a child using some obscure old irish terms that the male scholars couldn't translate (laughs) Well, we can assume they have something to do with midwifery and women's things. Okay. But the, she did some women's things. Uh, that's pretty much how it gets <laughs> translated, yes. But this woman does deliver a son. 
And at the same time outside the house, there's a mare giving birth to twin foals. Yes. Now, it's not clear why, but the Ulsterman agree to take the child into fosterage. Yes. And and in fact, it's Dechtoner who becomes his fosterer. Well, it's probably this, as we know, the higher status the foster parents, the better off your kids will be. And this is the king. Exactly. It's a king. Mm. So they're, in a way, showing respect to him by saying, will you foster our boy? And they agree and they take the two foals as the fosterage fee for the boy. And then, just to prove that this is another world experience altogether, when they wake up in the morning, they find themselves in the very eastern part, but back in their own territory. Yeah. But there's no sign of the house, but they still have the baby and his foals. Yeah. They can make nothing of it whatsoever, so they just go home. They return to Aramaka. Yeah. So Dechtina raises the child until he was probably weaned again words around children that the men have mm. problem translating until the boy was a little bit older but then the child gets ill and dies and Dechtina is utterly utterly devastated by his loss mm. and that is Cahullan's first attempt to enter the world yeah and it seems he's been brought back as another world child yeah. across the border yeah but he's too much part of the other world to survive yeah you know, he's effectively what later becomes called a changeling. Absolutely. He can't survive that transition from yeah, the other world yeah. into this world. But his horses can. Those horses stay with him throughout his life. And later on, they become his famous pair, Liamacha, the Grey of Macha, and Dove Sanglin. Yeah, but as we know, horses, birds, they play the roles of psychopomps over and over again. Yeah. Horses seem to be able to do the job. Yes, they do. Now, Dechtana keens for the loss of her fosterling but the keening is so intense that it leaves her with this prodigious thirst really uncommon strange unbeatable thirst for which she requests a drink from her special bronze cup and surprise surprise there's a worm in the cup wouldn't you know it yes and there's a lovely description of how she is taking up this cup to her lips and the little worm is trying to jump out of the cup and into her mouth but it never quite makes it until the very very last drop as she's pouring it into her mouth the worm finally makes the leap lands in her mouth and she swallows it with that last drop of liquid (laughs) the language in the text is of particular interest here isn't it it's sort of densely packed with meaning it is in these couple of sections i think there's quite a lot to pick apart i would bring people's attention to the fact she requests a special vessel Mm -hmm. for this drink But the description of the worm, just after it has jumped into her mouth, there's this strange phrase that's nach ni inyuch, which sort of literally means not a thing in a thing. It seems obscure to us, and that tells me that this is some kind of tradition-dependent idiom. So it's almost like half a well-known phrase or saying. Yeah. So that you might hear part of it, and you'd automatically know the rest. Yeah. So if I said to you, oh, from little acorns you'd automatically know the other half. Yes, although I'd usually say it the wrong way around, because <laughs> usually mighty... say from mighty acorns, little oak trees grow. But that doesn't help in this situation. <laughs> from little acorns, mighty oak trees grow. That's the one, But yeah. you see what I mean? You wouldn't have to say exactly. the whole thing to know the other half. Yes. I think there is definitely, because of the alliteration of the phrase, for one thing, I think it sounds proverbial to me. Mm-hmm. But also, I think what it's signifying is that there's this little worm, this nothing of a thing, mm. This, you know, not anything you would regard, something insignificant, in this empty cup, Mm -hmm. this cup that's holding nothing. And that 
is going to cause a pregnancy mm. where something teeny tiny microscopic and insignificant can produce an entire person. Well, I suppose that's true, really. It is. As we said before, you know, there are some pretty obvious metaphors in terms of how conception and birth yeah. work. And we did discuss the significance of swallowing a waterborne larva in yes. the last episode. Yes. And the transformation symbolism of metamorphosis is powerful in any circumstances. Yes. I mean, how some tiny little larva mm. can produce something as beautiful as a huge purple dragonfly. Yeah, yeah. And it is wondrous, but... I also get the feeling with this Nakni and Nyuch, it's also sort of saying, well, nothing comes from nothing, you know. You know, did you think the babies fall off trees? It's kind of saying, well, there is a reason for this. There's a reason that people get pregnant nine months after they've had sex. And then they have children. Exactly. You yeah. know, it's, it's a bit of a sort of, what did you expect? And again, holding on to them is tough. Yeah. Because yeah. so many children died, it's almost like they're dragging them out of the other world. Yes, yes. Was quite Quite a problem. Quite literal, yeah. And even Blake was talking about children, babies, training yeah. clouds of glory until you sort of pin them down. Yeah, yeah. But back to the story. Yes, yeah. Uh, the swallowing of the worm now more than implies that she's pregnant. <laughs> yeah. But this story just doesn't stop. <laughs> it piles on significance after significance. So while Dectana sleeps, she dreams. Yes. And again, we've got some interesting language, haven't you? We do. With more of that language, we have Kanak and Lee. We've she saw something we have. This is the marker that says, listen to the next bit. It's important. Yeah. And a man comes to her in her dream. And yes. what he says, as you say, puts the next paragraph at the heart of the story. It does. It so, becomes the crux. So in that case, I'll read that paragraph yeah. from the text. He said to her that she would be pregnant from him and that it was he who brought them towards him to the end of the territory. It was with him they stayed the night. It was his, the boy who was Foster's, and it was he who happened again to be in her womb. And Shavender would be his name, and he himself was Lou Macethlin, and that the foals would be raised for the boy. So there, this is suggesting that it's Lou himself oh, who's yes. the father of the child. Absolutely. And the rest of it. it's, but it's linking the children as well. It's mm. saying that the boy that you fostered is now the boy that you're going to give birth to. It's probably worth pointing out, you probably went, what has this got to do with Cúchulain? He's talking about Shadenda. You might have heard the name Setanta, which is just a bastardised, anglicised mispronunciation of what Cúchulain's birth name actually was, which was Shadenda. And it means that he's a little jewel. Mm. He mm. doesn't stay that way for long. But that's how he starts off. So you're going to hear us talking about Shadenda and we're going to be smug about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always thought Satanta just doesn't sound It doesn't sound Irish. Irish, you know. And now there's a bloody sports channel with the name and <laughs> you hear people talking about the noble Satanta. And, oh, so let's dear. give the little jewel back his name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until we change it. <laughs> Until he minutes. changes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this, anyway, is the second of three conceptions and births. Now, before we move on, there's mm. just something. It strikes me that this all has overtones of a classical enunciation sequence. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it echoes the Christian enunciation when Gabriel comes to Mary, although there are plenty of classical Greek and Roman maidens who get themselves impregnated in very novel, divine or semi-divine ways. Or semi-demonic, a lot of them, I think. <laughs> you know, all I'd say to you is the cow frame, but anyhow. I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of shower of gold. Yeah, well, that too. Golden shower. Yeah, let's let's not. Anyway, that's classical. <laughs> I didn't say that. Oh, those Greeks, those Greeks. Anyhow, 
It's possible that there are other traditions being alluded to with this kind of enunciation. I mean, we saw how with Concover's birth, there was this very deliberate and consistent connection with the birth of Christ and even Concover's death with the death of Christ. Maybe this is linking Cúchulain's conception with either classical or even biblical enunciations. Well, it's saying this is just as important. It is. If Concover can do it, so can Cúchulain. Yeah. But anyway... She is now pregnant by an otherworld worm and a dream, which is rather inconvenient. <laughs> but there is another more prosaic side to this mm. element in the story. She is now a pregnant, unmarried girl. And because she has no stated partner, rumours go around that it is, in fact, her father can cover who has impregnated so her. So incest was thought to be a rational possibility. And indeed, a probability. Now, as I said before, there are later versions where Dectina is Concover's sister. But even in those, Dectina has gone off to the other world with Lug and they are living there happily. And Concover comes across Lug in the territory and says, oh, here's a man in my territory. It's my right to sleep with the wife of everyone in my kingdom. And so he's just demanded to sleep with his sister. Sounds like it was definitely incest. Absolutely. Whichever way you slice Mm. it, that's what you get, I'm afraid. Well, it doesn't get any better. No, this is the really worst, nasty part. Right. Warning. Yeah. This is a nasty part coming up. Yeah. Because of these rumours of incest, her father is planning to marry her off to Suldev. But Dectina is not happy Going to a marriage bed, carrying somebody else's... Possibly her father's. Possibly her father's child. And so she beats her belly backward and forward on the bedpost until she is no longer pregnant. It's horrific. It's just... It makes me sick every time. And, by the way, there's more dense and obscure language in that passage. I will leave that bit. Yeah. It isn't very nice. It's not. Then she marries Suldiv and gets pregnant in the normal way. And, finally, the child, Shadenda, manages to get born with his two human parents. And his foals as well. Oh, yes. His foals do grow up with him and stay with him all through his life. Even so, like all hero children, he grows up faster, bigger, stronger than all the other children and has super abilities. Of course he does. In fact, one of the best-known schoolroom stories is one of his childhood feats. Ah, yes. That's how he turns from Shadenda into Cúchulain, in fact. And everybody gets to pronounce it better. Yes, yes. (laughs) This is one that if you went to primary school in Ireland, you will know. But if you haven't, then you might not. Very, very briefly, the child Shadenda is fostered to Cullen the Smith, but Shadenda loves going out playing hurling, which is a very Irish sport. Think of lacrosse, but more violent. One day, Shadenda is out far too late, and when he comes home to Cullen the Smith, the guard dog is already out guarding the place and makes a jump for Shadenda, who just lobs the schlitter, which is the hockey ball, the puck, down the dog's throat and kills it. And then he's very, very sorry. He goes... He... <laughs> sorry. He's a very upset little boy. He goes into his I'll foster father and says, I'm sorry, I killed your dog. I'll be your dog. Arf, 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 arf. And that's how he becomes Coo Cullen, the hound of Cullen the Smith. <laughs> yes, okay. So that's the etymology of that. <laughs> And not Shadenda anymore. No. So how do we compare 
the conception or conceptions and births of Cúchulain to the other conception <laughs> and birth stories that we've been discussing. Well, what can I say? Yeah. I mean, the abuse of the birth process is still present along with general incest yeah. and violently self-induced abortion. Yeah. Not a particularly happy story. It's not, not a happy start anyway. No, certainly not. Now, I have to say, in reading this text, I began to see almost a standard story of an incestuous birth in a family of very high status, mm. which added a great many hero markers yeah. as a kind of excuse, yeah. as a yeah. kind of cover. Mm-hmm. You know, like the birth of a lot of heroes, well-known, old oh, Mithridates, for instance. I'm surprised Cahullan didn't manage a comet or two as well. Well, <laughs> give him time. There's so many hero markers yeah. attached to this story. Oh, absolutely. And I think that triple conception is a particularly interesting one it is interesting yeah yeah it's not that common i don't think no and it is so different from say stories of other great heroes who who equally had um checkered starts yes but this is more complex it is and it's there's a very particular pattern the first child has two other world parents and that child does not survive the transition from other world into this world Mm -hmm. then there's a second conception where there's an otherworld worm. A very determined one. Yeah, and or a sort of a dream impregnation between the otherworld, Lug McEthlin, as he calls himself, and a human woman. That child is not allowed to be born. That child mm. is destroyed before it's born. And then finally you get the normal, natural, two humans having a human child, and that's the child that thrives and survives <laughs> into being the grown-up Kuhal. Although maybe that says something about doing things the sensible way. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make it so complicated. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but mm. for now it's also interesting to note that Kuhulun, human, otherworld, both or neither, leaves no descendants. No, he doesn't. As we'll see in a later story, he manages through the usual combination of Gesha and idiocy kills his only son. It's only those foals who were born in the other world who later come to be his fantastic horses that persist throughout all mm. these different lives, all these different beginnings that Cuchulain mm. has. Mm. But the other thing is that with that it takes Cuchulain three times before he can get born properly. And I wondered whether that sort of accounts for him never quite being at home in his body. He's mm. never fully human. He's never fully in this world, as we'll see from his later career. Yes, he's Brilliant. never comfortable with anything or anywhere, really. No, he? and he's always trying to sort of escape from the limitations of the human body, mm. as though he wasn't really meant to be human. But that's something that I think we'll come on to as we follow his life story, as we meet him down the road. As he goes through the toy story. Yeah. Well, I suppose we ought to finish by just commenting on births in the toy in general. Mm. I have to say, conceptions and births in the toy, they, they, they're not particularly happy pairings, no, are they? No, It's not like the ones in Moitura, which led to healing. Yeah. Even eventually, Bresh. Yeah. Bresh's birth leads to healing. Yeah, it, it leads to a much better form of agriculture for the people. <laughs> it, it brings things on somewhat. Mm-hmm. All you can say about this is basically abuse leads to chaos. Yeah, and there is abuse in the toy tradition from the beginning, I mean, mm. if we just go back to look at our swineherds, who mm. we said were a sort of template for the motifs we were going to find mm. as a whole. Message from that was don't sack your poets. Yeah, and the message from these ones is don't silence your women. 
If you abuse the women and the parts of life in which women are intimately involved, then disaster is going to follow. There's no way to get around that. closing down and shutting the channels between the other worlds that bring life and renewal. Yeah. And we'll see that happening again and again. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse. It is, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what fun. Mind you, next time, if we look at some of the youthful feats of Cahollan. Yes, some of his early adventures. Some of those are really good stories. They are. They should be, uh, well, we hope they're going to end up a little bit lighter than we've been this And they've got some interesting women in them too. Oh, there's some good women coming up. Don't you worry. (laughs) Not that we're only looking at that, but it just (laughs) can't help it. (laughs) Well, until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to Agalaf Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Azalda Obolacon Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.